Hi, and welcome to Stained Glass Stories. Today we have me and my co-host Matt Ziegler and um, a previous professor of ours, uh, Sister Anna Ray. So we're really excited to get into this topic today about philosophy and uh, what it's like to live in a religious life. And so without further ado, let's introduce our guest, Sister Anna. How are you, Sister Anna? Doing great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, your, the order that you're currently in, some of the classes that you teach at CUA, uh, maybe a little bit about your undergrad time here. Sure thing. Can I start with a uh, full disclosure that I've had back, I've had both Matt and Austin as, uh, as students, so this is a delight just to be here and to, uh, to be in conversation. So I have been teaching at CUA. This is my seventh year. Um, for six years, I taught FYE, and this is the first year that I'm FYE-less. Uh, <laughs> um, so not quite going through withdrawal, but I've taught both um, philosophy 201 and 202, and also theories of ethics, um, rhetoric and theory and practice, and I'm currently teaching philosophy of God, and then uh, 201 and 202 for transfers and 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 the like. Um, yeah, and my uh, I'm a member of the community of uh, St. Cecilia, so the Nashville Dominicans, which is our, our common, more frequent title, and uh, I've been a sister for, oh gosh, 18 years now. Wow. So the Nashville Dominicans, is country music the, the music of choice in the convent? That's it. Actually, St. Cecilia is the, um, the patroness of music, so oh, wow. we, we have the original claim to being in Music City. So. There you go. There you go. I'm a big country fan, so I'm, I'm, I like that. Yeah, um, yeah so... Um, you know, Matt, why don't you kind of get into some of that, that, that conversion, that storytelling that we want to get into? Yeah. Um, so you went to CUA for your undergrad, right? I did. Okay. I did, yeah. And um, it actually, the way that I got here is through kind of an embarrassing, uh, embarrassing series of crushes. So it's, it's <laughs> like, uh, it just shows the, the power of, um, of the Lord's hand that he can, he can work in guiding us even when we think that we are trying to seek him, he's seeking us out and often guiding us in ways that, that are only visible to us in retrospect. Um, so I, and in fact, I'll mention that my, my conversion story and how I got to Catholic and then how the Lord brought me to the convent are kind of all intertwined, but, um, so feel free to interject. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, to kind of chop it up. But, um, when I was in, when I was in eighth grade, I remember, um, watching my sister have this argument with um, a guy named Mike, um, and it was just around the 4th of July. So again, I'm in eighth grade, my sister's um, four and a half years older than I am, and she was arguing with Mike about um, basically selfishness. That she was arguing that selfishness is, is not um, the way to go through life, not you know, the way to be happy or the way to, um, to you know, help a community or basically to be good. And he was arguing just like full throttle for a kind of egocentrism. And that was um, interesting to me. Um, but what was more interesting was sort of the, the way that he was going about talking with my sister. Um, he had just incredible, um, just his reasons were so well developed and he was arguing passionately for them. And I, in, in a way, like, I kind of had a crush on the way that he was thinking because <laughs> it was it was thorough, it was clear, and it was impassioned in a way that I hadn't really run into before. And in particular, I hadn't encountered that among the people in my life that were that were faithful Catholics. Um, Mike was pretty um, pretty much an avowed atheist that came out in his his argumentation. Um, so that kind of started my my fascination with just the pursuit of truth um, in. Uh, just in, in the way that I go about asking questions. So another way that I put this is that um, although I was raised Catholic, I wasn't raised with a presentation of the faith that was that was um, robust and thoroughly grounded in reasons, and I was longing for those. So I, it's almost like I would have started asking these questions if there had been anyone around who would have been receptive to those questions and, you know, against whom I could have, like, kind of thrown my questions or even... Um, you know, thrown some arguments, and Mike was one of the first ones that I, you know, kind of thought, hey, wow, this is the kind of stuff that I want to do, even if it's not the questions that I'm asking. Um, so kind of fast forward through high school, I started turning to um, to the philosophy that 
you know, that I thought Mike was reading, which was this <laughs> Ayn Rand egocentrism, and um, and then made my way through some Albert Camus, and of course these are these are really um, these are really philosophers who, in the end, end up despairing. Um, but, is this in eighth grade you started reading this stuff? Well, that was okay. So the crash was in eighth grade, and then when, <laughs> when high school came, I'm like, all right, now I'm really going to be serious, right? And of course, I'm reading these, and it's, you know, I'm I'm understanding maybe two percent of it, but. But I think that's okay. Like you can you can pick up a book, you can pick up an article or something, and it's worth going through if you just are asking the question. Like even if it just moves you to to be in a position where you start genuinely asking a question, then eventually it'll open you up to be able to receive an answer, even if it's not the one that is presented in the article. So so yeah, freshman year, all through high school, I was um, kind of just picking up any philosophy that. Um, that I could find, um, but none of it was was Catholic. Um, none of it was was Christian, and it really was all about just sort of these existential questions of, um, you know, what are what are we grounded in? What are we going for in the first place? Is it you know essentially a selfish thing or not? Um, fast forward to another crush, <laughs> uh, where so I went to public high school, um, and uh, there was a group of people that were just sort of you know. Um, seemed like they were pretty happy, um, and I'd, I knew one of them just from, you know, passing in the hall and whatnot, and he came up to me one day, and he said, hey, you're Catholic, aren't you? Um, and at that time, I was like, oh, I kind of was, but of course, since I had a crush on him, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> and he said, uh, well, there's a group of us that go to adoration um, on Wednesdays, you know, would you, would you be game? And so I had no clue of what adoration really was. So, but here's my crush asking me to go to adoration. So I said, <laughs> sure. He said, uh, all right, great. So we'll, um, you know, we'll pick you up at 5.30. At first off, I thought, we? What do you mean, we? <laughs> so he said, we'll pick you up at 5.30 and, uh, you know, we'll adore from like 6 until 7. Then we'll go to Dunkin' Donuts and we'll be back in you know, time for, <laughs> uh, for school. And I was thinking 5.30 a.m.? How? Okay. So um, <laughs> I... Uh, you know, ended up, he showed up in a Jeep Wrangler and we piled like a ridiculous number of people into a Jeep Wrangler <laughs> and got to this adoration chapel. Um, and uh, they went in and genuflected and knelt down. So I, you know, genuflected, knelt down and I guess kind of looking at, at my crush and noticed <laughs> he's not looking at me. <laughs> you know, everyone is just looking at you know, the, the monstrance, the Eucharist and the monstrance. And, of course, this is something that really is unfamiliar to me. And so it took me a while to realize, all right, there's something going on here that I don't know what it is. And uh, after a few minutes, I just had the sense that I was being looked at. It wasn't all of a sudden that I thought, okay, maybe I should pray. But it's like I was just kind of honestly there and not sure what. I was kind of open to I know not what. And I was just kind of overwhelmed by this personal presence and I forgot about my crush. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it kind of ironic it was like the, the crush but then you ended up falling in love with Christ? There you go, yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's, and um, and I mean every every step of the journey it's been like, yeah, the Lord says, okay I know how she works or you know, she's, he says to me, like I know how you work and I can draw you by yeah. um, by things that you don't even realize are under my control. Um, so yeah, so I started um, you know, philosophy and then um, sort of encounter with the Lord and the Eucharist. And I realized from that that there was just, um, there was a whole world of the interior life that was different from just reasoning. And um, I couldn't figure out quite how to connect those, um, but I wanted that, wanted that connection. Um, and fast forward to another crash at the end of high school, um, <laughs> I was arguing with someone and he said, you should study philosophy. Um, I said, what? Um, you know, meaning in, in college. And, and I, I I'd actually kind of soured on the idea of college. Um, I come from uh, a pretty rich area of, of Connecticut where um, it was just totally blessed to be there. But from, from the get-go, I had this sense of, like, I don't want to be living in the country club club life, you know, forever. And so many people in my town were just, um, seemed to me like they loved the country club life. And the reason why some of my peers were going to college wasn't at all for the pursuit of truth or this encounter with the person, but, but rather they wanted to sustain the lifestyle that, um, you know, in which they'd been raised. And I wanted none of that. 
So I even threatened to my parents and said, I'm just going to learn how to drive a, you know, a big rig. <laughs> like, like, you know, I'll, <laughs> and tons of these AP classes and, you know, and I have great scores, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a trucker. <laughs> so I can, I don't know, listen to like philosophy books on tape or whatever, <laughs> philosophize over a CB radio. Um, so that was kind of, you know, in my, it was going into my senior year, I was still thinking about it. And um, so I didn't, I had no clue that you could actually study philosophy at, you know, at a, an academic level, at a collegiate level. So this, um, you know, third crush <laughs> said, um, oh yeah, you should, uh, you should definitely study philosophy. And I was like, you, you know, you can do that? He said, yeah. Um, I said, well, where? Um, <laughs> and he said, well, there are really only two places where it's worthwhile to do philosophy. I was like, okay, give it, give it to me. And he said, Cornell. I said, nope, <laughs> uh, because that's, that was on the list of, you know, where, where a lot of my, my buddies were going. And he said, or the Catholic University of America. And I said, the Catholic University of America? That's <laughs> so obnoxious to have a definite article. <laughs> like, um, and I said, okay, why, why these two, why these two um, you know, schools? And he said, well, they're the only schools in the United States that have, or the only universities that have a school of philosophy. And if you're going to do philosophy, you want to do it in a community that is independent um, and able to um, to basically pursue the truth no matter where it will lead. That means a certain you know, um, independence from a broader university structure. So I said, okay. Um, and uh, December, December of my senior year, I uh, drove down and found the building that said philosophy. This is obviously not before the internet. So the internet was around, but it just wasn't used. So like I, I literally had the address of you know, Catholic University of America. You're like down 95, you know, basically <laughs> until kingdom come. So I found McMahon, obviously, which says philosophy. And thankfully at that point, um, that was where the school of philosophy's dean was. So then I literally found the door that said dean of the school of philosophy, um, went in, and asked the secretary, um, I said, uh, can I meet with the dean? <laughs> and uh, she said, do you have an appointment? I said, no. <laughs> you know, here I am, being driven like five hours. Uh, and so she um, opened the door and, and said, she said, well, just let me check with him. So uh, she popped her head in and, and said, uh, yeah, father will meet with you. I was like, father? <laughs> um, so I popped in, and this was um, Father Kurt Pritzel, um, O.P., so at this point, I had no exposure to Dominicans, no clue of what OP meant. Um, you know, I thought maybe it's some weird sort of doctorate or whatever. But um, so he was in cleric, so I didn't even see visually that he was uh, that he was a Dominican. But he asked me, you know, why do you want to study philosophy? And uh, I didn't tell him about my crushes, but I did tell him <laughs> that, um, just about my fascination with um, sort of these these existential questions, and told him what I'd read. And 45 minutes later, I walked out of the room thinking, one, that I'd made a complete fool of myself, and two, that I had done so in front of a man that was incredibly humble and incredibly wise. I thought, that's what I want. I want that. I want humility and I want wisdom. Um, and somehow that will unite this desire for the truth and this encounter with something beyond the truth. Um, and so uh, spring came around and... I got a substantial scholarship, and that made everything possible and showed up here. Uh, incidentally, just when the conventional Franciscans uh, took on the reins of campus ministry, so <laughs> this is in many ways coming full circle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so then what happened between, you know, CUA and, and studying in philosophy to go into the convent? What was, what was the moment... That I guess you knew, and have, did you know from a young age that you were possibly called to? Not at all. No. Not at all. Um, and here it's kind of strange. I'll start my response. Um, the day before I made my final vows, so in in my community we have seven years before we make our our vows. You know, for all my life. Um, so the, the the evening before, this is in Nashville. My, my parents had come down, and um, but at that point, we were still uh, keeping our, our monastic silence right before us, even though they, they kind of they popped in the convent door and just wanted to wave to me. Um, and I had uh, I'd, I'd known that my parents probably would, would come by, and so I had, I had brought down from 
from my locker, uh, my hair, which sounds, sounds really strange, but uh, I well have curly hair, but I had really long curly hair just before it was cut when I received the veil. Um, and But I knew that when my hair was cut at that time, that my parents were, they were really struggling with my, my vocation and I knew it would have been a huge emotional blow um, for me to uh, <laughs> to say, here's my hair. <laughs> you know, like, um, so I had held on to it for, um, you know, six, six years or so. So I um, kept this really long lock in a box. And I, uh, when I saw my mom, just in silence, I handed her this box, um, didn't wait for her to open it. And she handed me a letter um, that said roughly, um, dear sweetie, you probably have wondered why your father and I never told you about religious life um, when you were growing up. She said, we were both taught by sisters when we were young. And when we got engaged, we discussed this, and we both acknowledged that sisters were among the most miserable people that we had ever known. <laughs> so This we, is right before. This is right before right I made before. my final vows, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? And I mean, it was just... Which is silly. Is I had never thought it was strange that they hadn't told me about religious life. But this, when when I was reading it in the letter, I was like, oh yeah, I like heard nothing. <laughs> um, I mean, nothing about discernment, nothing about God's will, nothing about vocations, anything. Nuns, sisters, monks, whatever. Um, so she said, you know, when we got married, we we decided that we would never tell our our children about religious life because we didn't want our children to become religious. Mm-hmm. Um, now. After seven years, we see that you're joyful, and so we give you our blessing. So, like, they <laughs> um, kept, kept you waiting. Oh, uh, no, I know. <laughs> like, what? Um, <laughs> I mean, that was just a, a huge gift to just have my my parents' blessing on what I I knew the Lord was um, was had already called me to. Um, but just to kind of like backtrack on that, um, I again was raised, you know, going to mass. Um, but with huge gaps in, um, in kind of the fullness of the faith or, you know, how many, how much of this, the gap was due to my own inability to hear things is, you know, yeah. it's probably pretty substantial, but, um, by the time I, um, got to Catholic, I still hadn't like, I, you know, I'd, I'd experienced adoration, um, and the catechism of the Catholic church had come out when I was in high school. So, started to read a little bit of that, but even so, somehow I just never ran across the parts on religious life or anything. Um, and at that time at Catholic, there were, um, you know, well, campus ministry had just come in, but there were only, gosh, I don't know, maybe two friars. Um, but really early on, I was, uh, like in the first few weeks, I was coming out of Mullen Library and I saw a guy in a long white dress and I thought, that's not a cross-dresser. <laughs> you know, what is this? So um, I followed him, and he um, he was going pretty pretty fast, um, and he was pretty tall and pretty short. So he was walking fast, and I was running. So he, Jay, walked across Michigan Avenue, and I, Jay, ran across Michigan Avenue to try to catch up with him. And he went into that glorious building, the Dominican House of Studies. And um, so I pretty much, like, hit the door. You know, if you're going really fast, you don't quite stop yourself. I let the door stop me. Um, so uh, I knocked, and, and he let me in. And um, he was late to what they called maspers, so evening mass combined with vespers, so the evening prayer of the church. And um, I you know, went into this room where there are there were, like, 30 more guys in long white dresses. I thought, well, this isn't an explanation <laughs> you know, um, of what it is. And, and I just sort of was, was looking around there, chanting the Psalms, and even the stained glass windows were full of guys in long white dresses, and and once my attention just kind of rested on the whole picture, I thought, oh my gosh, there's something so pure about about what's happening here. There is a, there is a love that was so pure. Um, and of course, coming from high school, as you know, we all run into like inauthentic love, mm. and I knew what that was, you know, but it's kind of strange. You can often first know what some, what you don't want. Like you, you run into something you, I, I know what I want in virtue of having run into the opposite, you know, and, and in large part, that was my experience of, of love. And I thought, whoa, here is the real deal. Uh, okay. But there's a problem. I'm a girl <laughs> and these are all guys. Um, <laughs> it, uh, 
I stayed for, you know, stayed for daily mass and, and started coming back more and more and like the gaps in my, my set, my, my knowledge of the faith started to be filled in just through conversations with these brothers and, um, and through the homilies. And after a few weeks or so, I said kind of jokingly, okay, so how do I get, you know, one of those robes <laughs> like the habit <laughs> so is this your freshman year this is my freshman year. freshman year and at this point i mean i don't know if people still go over to the mid house of studies mm-hmm. daily or, or not but but i was like the only one <laughs> or occasionally there'd be a few others um this is and so i mean it, w- it was kind of weird <laughs> and by the way i told my like no absolutely nothing <laughs> of this to my parents you know um but so after a while um kind of one of the brothers said oh well you'll have to get a veil if you're going to get the habit. I was like, what do you mean? I said, well, we have, we have sisters. I said, what? There's a, there's a girl version? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. Um, so I was like, where, where? Um, he said, well, uh, Nashville's really, I mean, that's the place to go, at least, at least to start. And so I, um, at that point, you know, I was in the fall. And so I didn't have a lot of money and, um, didn't want to ask my parents <laughs> to get there. <laughs> so I'd actually had, um, I was scheduled to go to, I think it was to Philadelphia with, with um, uh, to do some sort of a soup kitchen run during spring break. Um, and that's what my parents thought I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I canceled that and made my way down to Nashville uh, during spring break. <laughs> it's like, who lies during spring break? Like, who are you running out to go to the government? Um, so I, I, uh, went down and honestly, I was expecting to find just, um, basically friars with veils, you know, just like exactly the same kind of life. And it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, St. Cecilia as, you know, patroness of our order, like she, or as our, of our congregation, like she, it was, it was really feminine. And the question that I went down to Nashville asking was, is this what I want? And my honest response was no. Hmm. Uh, I, um, no, Austin sitting right next to me. I'm a Yankee fan. And I'm also <laughs> deeply, like, you know, my parents are Californian, but I still have this sort of Yankee-ness about me, and Nashville's in the South. So there's this sort of Southern uh, way of things that just didn't, you know, didn't uh, move right with me. Um, and also, I was like, well, uh, this is an order of teachers, and I didn't want to teach. Um, and I thought also, like, living with a whole bunch of, of women, um, you know, I had some experiences with my friends when I was in high school where it's like, okay, they're friends, but do you really want to live with them for the whole, <laughs> whole of your life? So I, on a natural level, I thought, okay, well, I do I want this? No, I don't want this. And so I kind of thought, all right, I've done the discernment thing. And um, I thought, I, God bless these sisters because they're, they're, they're awesome in their own way, but it, it initially didn't strike me as my way. So I uh, came back to Catholic and um, just delved more and more into philosophy and uh, ended up, I thought, okay, well, if I've discerned, you know, discerned religious life and got an answer, no, then I must be called to marriage. Obviously, like as a subtext here, that's not the way to go about it. It's not, you know, like an an either or sort of thing. You're never called to anything by default Um, or just, but like by process of elimination, I must be a... Um, by process of elimination, <laughs> by the way, I didn't say that to the guys that I was dating. I was like, <laughs> all right, I know I'm called because uh, you were the stick that wasn't pulled. Um, so uh, I ended up getting engaged my, jun- my junior year wow. um, to a guy uh, that I had known from back in Connecticut. And uh, everything on, you know, on the surface looked really good. You know, he was intent on living his faith, you know, uh, just wanted to wanted to convert the world, um, through the sacrament of marriage and, and, um, he wasn't a Yankee fan. Was, <laughs> no, you know, uh, I, know, I know, I should have, I should have thought, oh, this was the sign. That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. On the first date, make sure you ask. Right. Um, but, uh, so it just, um, we, we agreed on so many things. He enjoyed, you know, enjoyed the kind of intellectual banter too. Um, so we just started moving forward with, um, wedding plans and everything and uh it was my um I guess it was toward the end of my junior year 
um, that I was up late um, writing a paper and just was something was just really distracting, um, distracting my heart, not so much my, my mind. So it's like something was happening my, with my heart so that I couldn't think properly. You know, I was like <laughs> trying to force it. I was like, I could force this, but it'd be really bad paper and I'm really paying attention to it. So um, at that point, um, Caldwell was open uh, all the time. And I, I think it was like two and actually no, it was 2am. So I, at that time I was living in Gibbons. Um, so walked across, you know, with the beautiful bright light of the shrine and, and went into Caldwell Chapel, um, right beneath the statue of St. Paul. And, um, just, just said, Lord, what do you want? What do you want? Um, and I was just kind of letting the Lord, like, hold my heart that just felt like it was cramped and uh, that's all that I said just what do you want what do you want and after I know not how long I heard again in my heart um, I want your heart and that I know it's like often I'm I, I wonder oh did I make that up in prayer or you know or is this the Lord and it's like it's strange I think once you once you begin a serious prayer life one of the biggest questions is Lord, like save me from myself, you know, yeah. or like, is this me or is this you? Lord? Yeah. Um, but just the signs that this was the Lord is that he said, I want your heart immediately. I knew what that meant. I knew it meant, all right, I'm not getting married. And I, I knew that it meant I am called to religious life. I'm called to belong to you. Not you know, like none of the details of religious life were coming into, into focus, but it was like, I, I will belong to you who are chaste and obedient for all of my life. You know, you know, not just until death, even just like, I, I want to start heaven now. Um, and that was given to me, not because I wanted it, because God wanted it for me. So like, I knew it right away. And also, I was given peace with it. Um, even though on a natural level, it should have been freaking me out. Because it's yeah. like, the salad plates have been ordered. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> That's what I was about to ask. Was it yeah. just like, not the stressful moment of like, Oh my gosh! I made the wrong decision. I need to let down so someone down right now. And was there pushback? Like, were you like, I don't want to do this. Am I really going to do this? You know, because we all have that moment where we like know that God is calling us to something, yeah. but human nature is just like that's not good for me. This is good for me. What I want is good for me. Was there that kind of pushback after that kind of encounter? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, the my immediate response. Um, wasn't just to say, yes, yes, <laughs> but I started bargaining immediately. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, but <laughs> can you, and I remember, you know, it's just, a, a, I, I don't even know if I was speaking out loud or not, or if I was just saying this in my head, but I, and it was just staring at the tabernacle. Um, so I was saying, okay, but you have to make it okay with my fiance. <laughs> like, like, okay, but can you explain this to him? And obviously, you know, you, you say our, our human nature pushes back, but it's also just like our, our, our tendency to protect ourselves is so strong. And I was thinking, I'm going to look like an idiot. How, do you know how many hundreds of people I have to now tell? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. <laughs> like, um, just, just kidding. Don't save the date. Um, and so my, sense of being humiliated um was you know was kind of coming coming to the fore but you know in those moments I think well what what's how do you how do you get beyond that moment if you continue to look at the thing that you're afraid of then you'll you'll continue to protect yourself but if you look at the Lord or if you turn your attention to the Lord um or um if you just surrender yourself into into his care then actually the fear the fear subsides, you know, if you direct how it's like, how are you directing your intellect? How are you directing your attention? So I just directed my attention back to the Lord and, um, and, uh, you know, he didn't accept my bargaining (laughs) except that, uh, when I did tell my fiance, uh, his, his response was, I knew it before you did. Wow. <laughs> it tells wow, you a little yeah. bit about him too, that it was like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> but, um, I thought, what, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> um, so the Lord, the Lord does, you know, care for all things. And, um, so at that point it was just, it was really a matter of, I was thinking, okay, well, I'm, I know I'm convinced that the, the Lord wants me there. Um, I was clueless about the fact that you have to apply 
um, <laughs> and that you can be accepted or you can be rejected. So that like, who wouldn't want me? Um, so I, uh, I ended up, gosh, did I, did I make a trip back down? Yes, I did make a trip back down. I pretended like I wanted to go on a retreat. Um, you know, it wasn't a vocation retreat, but I was like, I don't even know how to, how to go about this thing. So I, I went there and my, my original plan was to, um, finish my master's in philosophy in a year and work in a gym here in DC. So I, I told the vocation director my plan and she said, Hmm, well, what about entering this year? <laughs> uh, and I was like, what? Uh, oh, um, but once again, I just, you know, the Lord directs us by, um, by a sense of peace and just that ability. Uh, like he allows us to look away from the things that are, that are causing us fear. So I, I entered and that was only the beginning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's an amazing, that's an amazing story. I, I mean, honestly, I had you teacher, you done a lot of um, lecturing and, and telling of stories and um, I did not know all that. That was super interesting. I was like, so much of what you said, I think, um, resonated with me because you talked about like surrendering. I think so often we talk about, oh, we hear God's will, but how are we going to surrender to that will? And everyone just says, oh, like give it up to the Lord, but how do we actually do that? And you talked yeah. about like staring into that fear and how that can be really crippling. Um, yeah, it really resonated. I think that's something that I think a lot of people need to hear. Like, how do you actually like, like what is an example? What's a story of someone who actually just surrenders themselves to the Lord? And I yeah. think it's. Can I put a plug in, by the way? I yeah. don't know if this is kind of common uh, among CUA devotional practices, but, <laughs> but there's a novena called the Surrender Novena um, by Father Don DeLindo. Um, I don't know if he's servant of God. I think he's a servant of God. Um, and it's just, it's a novena that, frankly, I, I pray perpetually. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't really, <laughs> it's like kind of, why count to nine? But um, <laughs> it just, yeah, it, it really points to the the fundamental act of belonging to the Lord. Like we let ourselves belong. We all, we already belong to him and you know, our misery and our, our blindness and our confusion comes in so many ways just from thinking that um, I have to be the one to direct my own path or I have to be the one to um, like muster all the energy and whatnot. And that um, to be uh, like, to be faithful to our baptism actually means letting ourselves be fathered, um, you know, letting ourselves be so intimately united to Jesus, who through every moment of his life was in union with the Father. Um, and the key to that is, is surrender, not, not just um, like say, oh, don't think about that, don't think about that, but really letting the Lord, this is kind of a, it's an ironic thing, like surrendering really is a matter of letting the Lord see everything everything even the part that we're trying to hide from ourselves, because we are afraid of what would happen if it were seen so surrender to me now plug no, that's, that's all. I, I would i know i'll check it out um yeah I, I guess one thing is like now you're 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 teaching philosophy um and you're, you're studying philosophy in in relation to the current faith journey that you're in and your relationship with god where it's at right now um how is that passion for philosophy currently like impacting um, and any stories that you kind of have in through your philosophical study that have really impacted that, um, that relationship with God? Sure. Um, so I recently received my doctorate from the Catholic University of America. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, say, like, if there's anyone who's academically inbred, it's me. So I have a, a PhD, a PhL and a PhD from, from CUA. Um, but as you know, in order to get your PhD, there's a, um, a few comprehensive exams and, uh, a dissertation, but Mac was, was there. He was, I was teaching him and his, uh, his class when I, uh, at least when I defended it. Yeah. I remember um, that day. That was funny. Yeah, yeah. I was like, doctor, sister Anna? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo-hoo, <laughs> 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 doc. Um, so, uh, the process of writing the dissertation was was very very trying, um, but it was also one of the biggest blessings that I've received. Um, you know, definitely through my my time here, Catholic. Um, it was, it allowed me to, like it forced me, to muster, my my greatest intellectual efforts, and then I saw their poverty. Um, I it came to a point where 
months on end, I was unable to write. And it wasn't that, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't that I was lazy and it wasn't just that I was a perfectionist, but somehow I thought, I, I, I just couldn't put something down because I didn't see its truth. And that might sound strange if, you know, if, if you're, like you can get in the habit of writing short papers and whatnot. You can have difficulties writing short papers, but, but with the dissertation, it's just like the stakes were so high. Um, and frankly, like I'm really good at the school game. I'm really good. <laughs> and uh, so I could like, I can do, I can do, you know, term papers, I can do comprehensives and, um, and I could do all the smaller things. But then when it came to writing hundreds of pages and somehow giving some testimony to truth, I, it just, I saw my weakness, my utter weakness, like that no amount of effort would, would bring me beyond where I was. Um, and the only thing that I could do was just sit every day in front of the Lord. Um, so it came to a point where actually studying was indistinguishable from, from prayer. Like I, the only thing I could do is just sit in the Lord's presence. I really couldn't even say a word. Um, and um, I guess that was an experiential taste of what it really means for philosophy to lead um, almost like to the door, not just to theology. So if you, I mean, anyone who's who's uh, taken a theology or a philosophy class will probably will have heard the phrase that philosophy is a handmaid of theology, um, you know, and that it, in some sense, philosophy can prepare you um, for theology. But I, it's one thing to know that in your, in your intellect, like abstractly, and it's another thing to experience just the poverty of all human reasoning first and foremost, my own. Um, so I, that actually, ironically, that, that sort of, that block that I had um, lifted when I stopped saying to the Lord, what do you want me to write? What do you want me to write? And just allowed him to show me about himself and actually show me about myself. So it's strange, but I, like my dissertation was actually like a, a devotional act. <laughs> um, and I because it takes some, some consolation in this, not that I was trying to imitate any of the saints, but um, St. Thomas Aquinas, who is my big brother as a Dominican, um, <laughs> toward, uh, toward the end of his life, um, he, had, he was actually not finished yet with the Summa Theologica. Uh, he was, I think he'd just begun the, the tertia parts that talks about the sacraments. Um, and he uh, had, you know, he was, he would, he would translate or he would, uh, have, you know, had like four scribes, you know, that would just take notes on what he was doing at any one time. So apparently they had, you know, they'd gone to bed, but Thomas was still, um, you know, pouring over his books. And then he turned to prayer and he had this, um, he had a vision or he at least heard a voice um, where the Lord on the, the crucifix said, you have written well of me, Thomas, what do you desire? And Thomas responded, non te domine nothing but thyself, O Lord. Um, and after that experience, he didn't write, he didn't dictate anything else. And when his friars asked him about this, he said, in comparison to what I have seen, all that I've written is straw. Um, and of course, I, Sister Anna, I'm not claiming to have had a vision like that, but, but I think that there's a, um, that gift is extended to really all of us. Um, whenever you, in your studies, whatever you're doing, whether it's philosophy or architecture, I don't know, politics, um, <laughs> nursing, you know, you, um, that the Lord is there whenever you encounter your own weakness. And um, that is an opportunity, not necessarily to abandon what you're doing, <laughs> like, because uh, then prayer would be, kind of look like a cop-out sort of thing, but whenever you encounter your weakness, that is an opportunity to allow him to embrace you that much more. Um, and either to have him return you to your work, you know, in a new way where it's his impetus rather than yours, you know, or just be with him. Yeah, you talked about, just kind of bringing you back, um, I guess poverty of reason. So you sat there in your dissertation in the, mm -hmm. the chapel and, you, you said that your your studies became indistinguishable between prayer and you just kind of realized that. When you say poverty of reason, do you mean that your understanding of everything is so insignificant to his? Or do you mean um, 
that reason itself is so insignificant if it's not paired with faith or paired with a relationship with Christ almost yeah. or something in, in between or in the middle? Uh, maybe something a little different. Um, I mean, reason, human reason is a gift from God mm-hmm. and uh, it can for sure lead to, lead to the truth. Um, but what I was struggling with was something, um, yeah, struggling, wrestling, was something, I guess, a little, it's almost like the difference between um, knowing something is true in the abstract. You know, we, we all do that from the early stages. Um, you know, we learn the alphabet, not first knowing why. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. um, we first just, like, how, do, how do we end up getting into the truth game at all? Um, we hear someone say something, and we trust the person, and we repeat it. And then we ask questions and whatnot. Um, there's a danger whenever that happens, though, that we we understand the way that things connect in an abstract way, but we don't make um, a connection to our lived experience. And I guess what I found was that I'd gotten so good um, at sort of abstract reasoning um, and had lost the constant connection between what I was saying in the abstract and then what is this what is this to me um, and what is this to you Jesus right um, or Heavenly Father like do you care about any of this <laughs> um, and so uh, I don't want to denigrate reason at all um, uh, but if we end up living as though we are only um, rational creatures and then only occasionally, kind of like if, if we end up segmenting our life where we say, okay, here's where I do all my abstract reasoning. And then, yes, when I'm, you know, through my devotional time, when I'm at Mass or when I'm praying the rosary, but then, then I act by faith. Um, if we have this sort of segmented um, way of moving, navigating the world, then we actually don't ever experience the truth that is, is greater than either reason or faith. In poverty of reason for me, what that when I heard that, what I thought of was, you know, I study sometimes I can study so hard for you know for nursing for exams and stuff like that that I miss out on the personal relationships that I have with other people, yeah. and sometimes even my relationship with God, and so to me poverty of reason was almost this idea that, you know, your studies are, are just a means to an end, and if they become the end, then there's an issue. You know, the end is obviously heaven, and if your studies you know, getting an A is your end goal, that's a problem. Whereas, you know, for nursing particularly, I always try to figure out how to, to make my end for my future patients and my future families. To be able to support my future family yeah. and to be able to take care of my future patients. But sometimes I get so caught up in this idea of like, you have to get the best grade. You have to study hard for the grade and not for the sake of learning. Yeah. Um, so when you said poverty of reason, it to me it's almost like this idea of, of reasoning and of studying being your God, um, which I think I can fall into a lot of times and I think other students can fall into. And people, you know, when they talk about idols, they think like, oh, alcohol, drugs. But I think, you know, studying is just as dangerous of for an sure. idol. Yeah. Um, and, and learning for the sake of, of just getting an A is, is a really dangerous idol as well. Because I, I think also even like a broader way of looking at it is that we can end up idolizing our own judgments, you know, whether they're related to our, our studies or whether they're just our opinions about what's happening in the world, um, how you feel about quarantine. <laughs> we can cling to our own judgments as though that constitutes our identity and that constitutes our worth. Um, and that can actually be, it can be really crippling, right? You know, if you are constantly daily concerned with defending your own judgments at all costs, then you're going to be exhausted. You're going to view every interaction as either a rah-rah or, you know, as going up against a rival. Yeah. Um, and you, know, you mentioned at least one way of getting beyond that, which is to say, why in the world am I making any of these judgments at all? It's for the sake of some some good, you know, for my future family, for my future patients, that there's, there's some good beyond just my having this judgment right now. Um, and you, you know, you commit yourself to that. Uh, and I guess if, if I'm going to make a connection back to my story, you know, experiencing the poverty of my own reason, it was that I recognized that what 
what I'm called to, what we're all called to, ultimately, is to, is to say, Heavenly Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And um, why? Well, because that was that was Jesus's. You know, those are Jesus's words. And and he, it's not like, oh yeah, Jesus, kind of a bright guy. You know, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't because he couldn't see things that he abandoned himself to the Father. But it's like even Jesus himself submitted his human intellect, right? Mm. You know, to to the Father, and and really put into the hands of the Father his reputation, his identity, if you will, or, you know, his reputation is probably a better word. Um, but sort of like we, we have this gift, this ability to make judgments and, and that can be very good. But if we cling to it as though that is the ultimate, um, end goal, as you say, then it ends up, um, actually exhausting us, um, making us irritating to other people too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, there's one question that I really want to ask because I remember we were in your, I was in your philosophy class and we came to Boethius, I think it was, and Boethius just like destroyed me because we were talking about free will, I think, and free will, I was reading Boethius and I was like, I don't understand this at all. It's so confusing. It seems like the circular argument where it just comes back to, you know, confusion or maybe not even the possibility of there being free will which scared the hell out of me because as it should <laughs> you know yeah it's it scared me so i was like as a catholic i don't like am i forced to love god or is he forcing me to love god right now or do i actually have the choice to and it just blew my mind and i remember it came to the point where i had to like pray about it where i was like lord like i can't understand this i don't understand it and but i still want to love you like i'm still nothing without you so how do i move forward you know, and I think, I just think the lack of understanding, it just came to this like realization of, and something I came to this year too through a silent retreat was like, you need to learn how to trust me, whether you understand me or not, and whether I tell you yep. anything or not. And I was just like, that's so annoying, but like also so freeing to experience. So has there ever been a moment in your philosophical studies where, you know, something just wrecked you because it just like, could have compromised your theological views or your faith with God? Was there ever a moment in your studies or even even now your continued teaching and studies? Well, nothing that's been, uh, I guess, a, wow, I don't know if I can continue to, you know, um, read this and be, and be faithful. I haven't um, quite seen that. But um, I guess it's my experience with, with reading philosophy has been more that I've been like exposed in my weakness with pretty much every every good philosophical book that I've read, um, and I'll give a shout out to an unlikely character, but Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, I <clears throat> I adore Boethius as well, and and love him for precisely um, his honesty and articulating the the questions that ultimately are answered just by the Lord saying just let me hold you. <laughs> I mean, that's not what Boethius says, but, yeah. um, but Boethius ultimately, you know, was, was resting in that. But, um, I guess, yeah, being like shaken by, by something that I've, I've read. Um, Nietzsche talks a lot about anxiety and boredom, uh, and our capacity to distract ourselves from a meaningful pursuit. And I have, when I take when I take Nietzsche seriously, like I start to see all these ways that I myself have numbed myself, um, and that I distract myself from facing up to um, some sort of challenge that that you know at least part of me knows I need to to reckon with, and uh, I mean that distractions look different in the convent than they do out of the convent, but interiorly there's really very little difference. Um, you know, like I can, I can do, uh, you know, it's like I can, I can clean part of the, the convent as a way of distracting myself from, um, facing up in prayer to the thing that, um, that the Lord is, has put on my heart and maybe like facing up to a certain fear. And, um, it's, it's kind of strange to me at least that Nietzsche, who is a godless man himself, had that incredible attention to the interior, the interior life. At least that he saw, he saw all these ways that would dodge, um, dodge the heroic path 
and in it, it's even more fascinating that he calls us to pursue that heroic path, even though he himself didn't see that it was, um, it was one that ultimately is drawn by the hand of God. Yeah, that's actually kind of been the theme of probably my, my two weeks of quarantine is kind of just like, mm. you know, dodging things and, and substituting them yes. with, you know, video games sometimes or just with like mindless activities because I just don't even think about them. Yep. Mm. Yep. And I'm glad you bring this up because then I read, I read something, I think Catholic Answers sends me like an email every every day or something, and it was about sloth, and it was like how boredom is the sin of sloth, and I was like, what? Like, how is that even? And it was talking about how life is always interesting, life is always, you know, dynamic, and if you're sitting there and you have nothing to do, it's it's your own fault because you're not seeing the good <laughs> inside of that moment, and and what happens is when I get bored, I just try to fill it with something, yeah, yeah. and oftentimes it's a distractor of what, you know. It's not like filling it, being like, wow, I love video games so much. Like, Lord, thank you for video games. It's more of like, I'm so bored right now. There's nothing else to do. I'm just going to go play video games and just like not even use my reason almost while I play video games. Yeah. It's really funny you mentioned that um, because I think that's, I mean, that's the case for almost everyone, especially especially college students inside of their, you know, studies. Um, and Boredom is, is in some ways like an inability to pay attention to the present moment. So another plug for spiritual classics here, um, or maybe this is more a spiritual classic than the Serenity Novena, but um, the practice of the presence of God, just recognizing that God is neither in the in the past nor in the future; He's in the present, or at least we encounter Him in the present. And boredom, like if you think the moments when you are bored, it's that you are your attention is elsewhere than what's right in front of you, um, because you're afraid of the pain of what would happen if you actually did attend to what's in front of you. You know, maybe it's just like you're afraid of slowness. You, you know, you're addicted to action. You're addicted to um, sort of like a constant change. Maybe you're, you know, you're afraid of just resting. Yeah. Um, you're, because maybe you're afraid of silence. You're afraid of what you're going to hear in the silence or what you're not going to hear in the silence. So you do anything um, possible to, to bring your attention elsewhere. And um, so, like, is it your fault that nothing is happening in quarantine? <laughs> No, but, you know, are you responsible for directing your own attention insofar as you're capable to whatever's right in front of you? Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of like be where you are. And, and even if it means looking at the same thing, looking at the same person, you know, <laughs> like look deeper. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. I, yesterday, so it's, we're recording this on Sunday. So yesterday, Saturday, we were sitting in our room and it was me and Joe our cameraman who's not here right now, but he, um, he was just sitting down and like had his legs crossed with a cup of coffee and was watching basketball. And at that point in the day, I was like, I have to do something right now. I'm so bored. And I was like demanding. And I was like, can we please do something? Can we Wrestle please with do me, something? Right? Yeah, and he was like, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm chilling right now. I'm very content with this cup of coffee and basketball. Yeah. And I was so angry at him. But now that you're saying this, I, I understand kind of, the beauty inside of that, because it wasn't like a mindless watching basketball, it was like a genuine joy yeah. of watching a game that happened five years ago that he knew the result of, and I was mind blown that you're watching a game that you already know the result of. Um, I think it was USC versus Pitt, the Kemba Walker step back um, for those sports fans that are listening, but um, so it was just so funny that like I was wrestling with him just to do something. And we ended up watching the basketball game, and I got a cup of coffee yes. and just sat you know, down. Is, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I I was talking to someone the other day about um, how one of the things that I do to numb myself um, is, uh, well, listen or uh, look at headlines for, for the news and like political, certain political, mm -hmm. you know, political commentary. Um, and I know that when I'm doing it, it's like I, there's something in me that goes, I just want to veg. Like, I, don't, <laughs> I know I, because I could predict everything that this, you know, political commentator is going to say or something like this. Um, and I think, okay, that that's numbing. When I go at it thinking I just want to be away from here, you know, like deliver me, deliver me from whatever I'm trying to avoid right now. Um, but that's so different from listening to, you know, political commentator, um, just because it because it is enjoying because you know there is there is something 
um, interesting, there's something engaging, or maybe even something ironically like restful about that. Um, when I was in high school, my uh, my dad and I used to listen to well Yankee games, but but <laughs> also also talk radio and think, well, was that was that numbing? No. Um, one, it was was like, you know, I was with my dad and we were both, you know, attending to the same thing. Like you and Joe ended up attending the same thing, mm-hmm. and so it's like the the line between leisure and distraction. Um, it's discernible, but it's sometimes fuzzy. Yeah. And you can't always, you can't just say, all right, these activities, um, objectively speaking, are the ones that are numbing activities. Mm-hmm. Like anything can be a numbing activity. Mm-hmm. Doing your homework can yeah, definitely be, yeah. getting a whole degree can be a numbing activity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, um, Might be scaring some students right now. <laughs> well, all the better, right? <laughs> it's like the Lord navigates it. Right? Yeah. I think it's interesting, like, it's one of those things where, like, when a saint that I particularly, like, relate with a lot is St. Augustine, and he says in the beginning of Confessions, our hearts are restless until we rest in you, and St. Augustine's a saint of great suffering and great sin, and he has this beautiful conversion. Um, I think it's, it's that, talk about that numbing, trying to avoid the suffering, confronting what you're at in the present moment, and you think, like, wow, like, and, like Augustine beat, like, lived out the life of a saint the moment he confronted his sins with God. Um, and that's when he started to find rest. And um, it's something I definitely like relate with in my own life. And, and this conversation even has brought out like a newfound um, kind of perspective on that. Um, I guess as we're, we're approaching this hour mark now, um, just a final, final question. So you have the story um, that, you, that, that you have in this beautiful faith story. What's the testimony now, like where you stand now in your relationship with God, you look back on everything you, and you say, like, here's where I'm at. Here's, here's where I'm going. And then that being in that present moment, like, how do you, how are you feeling about your relationship with God? Um, this is an unlikely way to, to answer, but um, one of the secular authors that I've been paying attention to, um, in addition to, you know, devotional reading and then philosophical reading, is Jordan Peterson, and he has a, a book that I feel like I, I must have. Uh, stock in all these, you know, like these novenas and books and whatnot. But um, his book, uh, Twelve Rules for Life," is um, is worth a read. Um, I don't think this is a one of his rules itself, but one of the things that that I really appreciate from his his perspective, which is that of a clinical psychologist, is that our attention is best fixed both on a distant ideal. So, so they keep your eyes on the stars, but then also fixed on the step that I can take now. We end up getting um, just sort of like we feel shamed, um, we feel inadequate, or else we have an overinflated sense of who we are and what we are. If we focus kind of in that like middle distance, you know, if we, if rather than keeping our eyes at once on the ideal and then on the step I can take now. If we think, oh, I just need to complete this degree. Well, you can't complete the degree right now. Like, you can't, you know. <laughs> so you feel paralyzed because there's something that that you feel somehow obliged to or, mm-hmm. or at least called to, but you don't you don't see how to move toward it. Um, so in terms of my own, um, you know, I don't even want to say journey necessarily, but in terms of my own response to the Lord and, in the way that I move through life, I just thank him for any moment when I can focus on the thing that he's calling to me, calling me to do now. Um, and a thousand times a day, I, I miss that. <laughs> but if you know a thousand times a day he calls my attention to the fact that I'm missing it, then God be praised. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Sister Anna, um, you know, this would be this would be great if you could if you could lead us in a kind of like a final prayer before we close out the podcast. Um, if you're listening, feel free to to say the sign of the cross, and we're going to close up in a final prayer. Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your goodness to us. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for creating us with all of the unique capacities 
all the unique experiences that each of us has encountered up to this very moment. We thank you for sending your son into this world and into each of our hearts. We ask that, Father, you would send the Holy Spirit so that every fiber of our being would be united to Jesus Montanex. We ask for the grace of surrender, the grace of seeing all and only what you desire us to see. And even in the absence of knowing all these things, we ask just for the gift of a grateful heart. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Mr. thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we, this is this has been stained glass stories. We're here from the cellar at the Catholic University of America. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.